Kubchak is the founder and CEO of Elemi, an industry-leading, tech-enabled provider of high-quality pediatric behavioral care. Inspired by his own personal journey in overcoming childhood ADHD, Yuri co-founded Elemi to repair the flawed model of care for childhood behavioral conditions such as autism. Under Yuri's leadership, Elemi has grown from 109 employees at the time of the company's seed round to more than 1,000 employees at present. Today, the company is active in 14 states and is expanding its national reach. Yuri graduated from Johns Hopkins University as a Woodrow Wilson Fellow. Welcome to the show, Yuri. We're really excited to have you on the Pulse podcast today. Here on the Pulse, we have a tradition of asking our guests to share something interesting about their background. Can you share anything about your personal background that our guests may not know about? Yeah, so I think I'm, I'm one of the few people that's American, Canadian, Belarusian. So I think that's sort of the, the most interesting little fun fact about me. What you said is really fascinating, and I appreciate you sharing the context for your upbringing. I'm curious on this point about how that influenced your mindset as an entrepreneur. Can you speak a little bit more about how that could have affected your trajectory from a career perspective, understanding that you started other companies before LME, like Lifehouse Hotels and Wing Wireless. So how has that kind of motivated your entrepreneurial focus? Yeah, so, you know, I was coming from a place where there was not a long history of entrepreneurialism, you know, right? I don't really have anyone around me that I think understood what entrepreneurialism really was or how to do it right. So oddly enough, I think it allowed me to be relatively risk on, you know, right after college, I jumped into the telecommunications industry, which is incredibly regulated, government controlled, especially the wireless telecommunications industry. And if I had proper sort of schooling around, you know, which which markets to focus on and which ones would have the like kind of lowest barriers to entry and make the most sense. I probably wouldn't have gone into telecommunications as my first business. And I think actually in retrospect, it's something that like that experience in the telecommunications industry, growing that business, which still exists to this day, doing very well, it sort of opened my eyes to just, again, like different sort of slightly contrarian takes and approaches to getting onto the market and not necessarily just doing the thing that perhaps everyone else around you is doing in these circumstances. The piece that really fascinates me about what you shared is when you come from that type of background, I think it's intuitive, especially when you have parents who are in very established professions to be more risk averse and go for conventional pathways. So it's interesting that you, from the outset, right after college, went the totally opposite of risk seeking and going into entrepreneurship, especially at a time where there weren't as much funding or other entrepreneurs, I'm sure, especially you know, coming from Johns Hopkins. Yeah, I think this part is like a really, what I would consider like a really American story. I, I moved when I was 15 years old to New York City. So for sort of the latter part of high school to New York City from Canada. And I moved to Queens, New York. And around me was just this like culture of like extreme entrepreneurialism small business owners like everywhere basically and it was it was just sort of like eye opening i never like considered it as like a like a possible career choice at all like up until that point and certainly wasn't exposed much to it and you know growing up in queens you know deli owners jewelers like people that owned their own like lending operations all sorts of different businesses 
So I think like for me, that opened up, first of all, of this even just being an option. Now, I didn't properly register and I still ended up going to Johns Hopkins thinking, you know, I would, you know, perhaps go to medical school and then maybe, you know, have my own private practice. And that would be my form of sort of entrepreneurialism. But as I got into college, I think I continued to be exposed to families that built businesses from scratch in America and did and did very well for sort of society for themselves while doing that. So I think it just sort of opened up this like realization in my head of like, wow, I can graduate from college and just start a company rather than getting a job. And how did you start your first startup after college? You make it sound so easy. And as a serial entrepreneur who's experienced a lot of success, there's a lot that others can learn from you. But on the other side of the entrepreneurial founder story are a lot of failures of people who don't start successful companies. So how did you start a successful company right out of undergrad? And what are some learnings that you've had as you've started other startups? I think the key word is just being resilient. I think honestly, that's the short answer. You know, you just had to push through a lot of challenging situations and and get to the other side. The premise behind Wing Wireless was us sort of as a group of founders realizing that you can create a better consumer experience uh, for American uh, wireless consumers. So we were in New York City and we saw companies like Warby Parker and Casper springing up around that time. And those were like the real like sort of entrepreneurial success stories at that time in New York. I would say New York was like still back then, like a relatively immature uh, sort of, you know, technology ecosystem. And we realized like, wow, you could build this like direct to consumer business model, but in something that has a recurring revenue, B, way lower NPS scores than buying mattresses or glasses and C, with just a way larger total addressable market. So that's what kind of like got us into, you know, the world of telecommunications. And we had our own like messed up, like data roaming experiences, traveling abroad, going on a trip to Austria and getting like a $3,000 bill from AT&T and just crazy stuff like that. And we, and, and we thought like, okay, we can do something better here. Now, it took us years to figure that business out. So I think that's where like, you know, be, being resilient comes in. It took us like a year and a half just to get our first mobile sort of wholesale cellular data agreement. So there were a lot of, I would say, financial challenges along the way, trying to raise money for this concept, honestly struggling at times to raise money for the concept, uh, but ultimately just pushing through kind of like just sheer willpower and commitment and I would say dedication. And as I look back at the startups that you founded, it, the story I would tell is it sounds like you were more opportunistic with Wing Wireless from a personal experience and saw a gap in the market around consumer centricity for a service that has been very stagnant or conventional for decades. And Lifehouse Hotels was also a bit opportunistic to kind of support the Wing Wireless and something more accessible. Can you explain if there's any common thread amongst the companies? And I think dovetailing specifically to LME, potentially now that you have two startups under your belt, being more intentional and mission-driven in terms of your motivation for starting LME? So I would say there are three commonalities across all these three businesses. The first one is actually sort of the last thing that you highlighted, where there is some like foundational kind of care for what I'm up to, you know? So 
I was never the type of person that could just sit and do work just for making money alone, right? I think for me, there, there always had to be some like bigger purpose, learning more about myself as a human, learning more about life, whatever that like bigger thing is. It was like really, really important for me. So there was this, I think, these broken experiences that I had across all three industries that were sort of frustrating for me that I wanted to fix, that I got obsessed about. So I think that was like one common thread going even down to Alamy because I had pediatric behavioral therapy growing up very young. That was really helpful to me, but you know, the experience broadly sort of broken there as well for hospitality. There's a lot of things that are broken about the hotel world. So that leads us to our second kind of point, I would say, which is like, just uh, like, like low NPS scores. I think all three of these industries, broadly speaking, could have higher NPS experiences. I don't think like the customer satisfaction kind of challenge has been solved in any of these access issues in the world of pediatric behavioral health to hidden fees, low NPS experience across, I would say, all of these. And I think the last thing is just like the general sort of complexity, I would say, of these industries working on something that was impactful, particularly for people like really low down on the Maslow's hierarchy of need, like with issues really low down the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where they like, you know, had concerns around their safety or, you know, something like that. I wanted to build a software experience that like helped solve some of these sort of big, big kind of existential challenges for a specific subset of, of the American and perhaps eventually global population. So that led me to my own personal experiences in pediatric, uh, having pediatric behavioral health services provided to me when I was very young, working through that and watching my family, which is primarily composed of medical professionals, sort of struggle through various health systems in different countries and feel relatively disenfranchised at times. And that's sort of what led me to founding LME and getting into the world of digital health and pediatric behavioral health more specifically. Can you describe for our listeners and set the context a bit for how you saw the pediatric behavioral science landscape before you started LME and what the gaps you saw that LME was here to provide and fit for? Yes. So I saw a major challenge, and it still exists today, in the U.S. health system, which is you have these clinically viable, clinically sound therapies that exist, but the access to these therapies is very challenged. It's very impaired. So I think the big kind of aha moment for me was the realization that the same sort of software infrastructure that made Uber what it is today or made Airbnb what it is today, the matching, the scheduling, you know, significant automation around that software and, and you know, AI that help data mining procedures that create better pricing mechanisms, better quality measurement mechanisms for these like really large scale marketplaces. You could take that infrastructure and actually bring it to behavioral health. So that was like, for me as a technologist, that was like super intriguing and a problem space that I wanted to work on. And I, as I looked around, I saw a lot of folks that were focused on like creating these like moonshot digital therapies. And some of those will work. Some of those will not work. 
right? It's just sort of, you know, the name of the game and those kinds of businesses. And I think I wanted to more focus on solving the access challenge for the coming years to those perhaps novel or new therapies and, you know, with time sort of integrate those onto the platform. And I think that access piece drives fundamentally clinical outcomes. Like if you're a child with autism and you start getting therapy when you're two years old, right, or two and a half years old, you know, you're going to have, generally speaking, empirically better long-term lifelong outcomes than if you start, you know, that therapy when you're eight years old. But I think it was just me sort of deciding to focus primarily on that for my professional life. That's really interesting. I am looking kind of at the behavioral health landscape and all the changes with telemedicine that COVID has ushered and consumer adoption of telemedicine and other ways that access has expanded as a result of COVID. I'm curious how LME started off by tackling this access problem and how LME's approach to access may have evolved over the course of the past year. So this is a really important discussion point, I think. Telehealth is not a wonderful, sadly, this wonderful sort of solution to all the healthcare problems in America. And I think when you look at, you know, where the costs come from, it's from the high acuity populations in healthcare. And that's the case in pediatric behavioral health and broader, like, you know, behavioral health as well. So I think for us, the focus point up front was to not build another telehealth platform, actually. And what we are really bullish on and excited about is this sort of what we call hybrid approach to care, where you have some of the care that gets administered over telehealth, and then actually a lot of the care, perhaps most of the care, still getting administered in person. So we were really, really intrigued to sort of see the entire sort of venture community, like kind of like appearing to like bet the house entirely on the telehealth stuff. And we felt that the hybrid model stuff was very neglected. And I think our view is it's still neglected today, actually. And we think like for the next 10, 15 years, it's not going to be about completely virtualizing care delivery, but I think the narrative is going to be about what can we do to virtualize certain parts of the care delivery to increase access or lower cost structures or drive outcomes. So I think like for us, like that was a really interesting problem set to focus on. And for something like autism, right, a telehealth only solution just simply would not work. So just to make sure it's clear to the listeners, like how our care delivery approach works, we have physical caregivers that go to caregivers that physically go into a home setting, right? And then they're supervised by therapists um, remotely. So that is, um, you know, very, very different than I would say what a lot of the other players basically do in the space broadly in this world of, of, of digital health services provisioning. And pushing on this hybrid model and the hypothesis behind why this is a more effective approach, do you think that this in-person element is most efficacious because of the pediatric population that LME is addressing, i.e. children uniquely require in-person interactions, and that's what caused the therapy to be more long-lasting? Or do you see this as a general element to behavioral health overall, regardless of the patient population? So it's about acuity, 
It's about acuity, and it's about us focusing on higher acuity populations. All right. So I think it's just there are certain conditions that you just cannot. The acuity is so high. Like let, let me give you an extreme example: open heart surgery. Right. The acuity is is very very high there. It's about as high as it gets. Right. And you know I think virtualizing that experience is going to take some time, probably. You know, I think a couple decades, perhaps um, at least, to fully virtualize it. So um, I think for us, like we just saw a lot of the costs coming from these higher acuity experiences, and we just wanted to specifically zoom in and focus on those in the world of behavioral health. So there are wonderful solutions for an employee that is having some maybe low acuity, mild, you know, let's say depression from maybe being overworked or discovering themselves in adulthood or whatever it might be. And there's, you know, mental health coach platforms that like support you there. But we just didn't feel like there were enough platforms that supported the really high acuity populations. So that was sort of the premise behind LME and us specifically jumping into child autism care as one of sort of the initial focus points. This focused segment on the patient population on these high acuity patients that drive a lot of the cost also ushers in the question of commercialization and who is ultimately paying for the service. I know you mentioned around taking out costs. And so curious how you think about addressing access, one of the points being financial burdens, especially over time, as you think about the cost of care for high QD patients. And then how do you think about that when you're targeting patient populations and who is ultimately responsible for the economic burden of the care? Yeah, really, really good uh, question. So first off, this is like sort of like one of the main focus points of our business. We feel like we can, you know, by providing better access, for example, we feel like we can take costs out of the system for this population. And I think it's really important to like zoom in on a metric on how you can kind of like account for that. The thing that we think about quite a bit is clinical outcomes divided by some unit cost right? That's associated with them. So I think it's all about trying to increase that ratio, increase that number. So you have two levers there actually, right? You can keep, you know, your clinical outcomes relatively the same, but just lower the cost structure on providing those same clinical outcomes. So, you know, telehealth might be a good, perhaps example of that, broadly speaking. On the other hand, you can keep your costs the same and just drive your clinical outcomes uh, somewhat more. So I think for us, like we try to do both those things. So there are certain product software initiatives that are focused on kind of driving clinical outcomes for the same unit cost. And then there are certain software product initiatives and experiences that we're trying to set up uh, partnerships to decrease the cost for a for an experience we're providing. So for us, it was really important at the onset to work with health insurance companies out of the gate. And we're sort of surrounded by digital health players that work primarily with employers. So we were one of the first ones to be pretty adamant about working with the payers. In the American health system, the payers are sort of the largest players. You know, when you work with payers, you also get to work with employers through the payers. An extension of that is the payers also service some of the most vulnerable populations in the United States. You know, the government insurance side of things, you know, the uh, managed Medicaid segments, state Medicaid programs, it was very important for us to work with those payers as well. 
uh, those government uh, health insurance kind of, you know, structures. And I think for us, like the way we think about it is what are the things that we can do in partnership with payers to drive costs down? There's sort of different approaches. Certain groups say, hey, we're going to try to drive costs down in the health system by not working with payers at all. Our view is we provide a very expensive service to the populations that we work with. So there has to be some payer involvement and for a large chunk of the population, about half the population, actually the government's paying for the service. So we just have to get good at lowering the cost structure in partnership uh, with those groups. So telehealth helps, certain software experiences that we created around providing access faster help over the long term. Those are just like a couple quick examples of how you can sort of, you know, reduce cost structures in partnership with payers. And then thinking about the numerator of the metric that you described, how do you think about quantifying or articulating in a standardized way clinical efficacy or clinical outcomes that improve over the course of these patients' life cycles? Yeah, look, it varies by a segment of, I would say, specific healthcare population that you're dealing with. But broadly speaking, sort of healthcare a decade ago or two decades ago, behavioral health and uh, medical healthcare were like sort of split and two completely different worlds. I think now uh, there's a broader understanding, including from the payers, that uh, behavioral health actually influences your medical kind of you know situation and your medical situation also influences your behavioral health. Um, so they're actually sort of two different sides of the same coin, perhaps, which is like kind of like the coin being your overall health. So I think you have to think about metrics for a business that kind of, you know, influence the medical and behavioral side of things. But you might want to zoom in on sort of, you know, specific metrics that are of a medical nature and specific metrics that are of a behavioral health uh, nature at the same time. Um, So for us, like what we see that influences sort of, you know, like kind of, you know, for us, like the leading metric in our business, zooming in into Alamy specifically, it's a reduction in problem behaviors that we really track. And it's also new skills acquisition. So those are like the two sort of things that we really focus on. They're more behavioral, I would say, in nature. But in turn, you know, intuitively, when a child learns new skills that they didn't have before, like you know, being able to go to the bathroom by themselves, like unsupervised or picking up a fork and eating a salad by themselves without involvement from the parents. You can imagine how, you know, those uh, foundational skills decrease perhaps with time, various scenarios, risky scenarios that could happen for that um, child as they go into adolescence and beyond. And lowers the cost structures, of course, for that child in just like kind of throughout the course of their life into adulthood. So we sort of focus a little bit more on the, on the behavioral health side. But I think it's just, again, I just want to emphasize that I think it's important to find metrics that broadly in the metric, the metrics are simple, but they also capture the medical side of the equation as well, which we feel like our metrics do. And I'm also wondering, because you're targeting the pediatric population specifically and going vis-a-vis insurers to bear the primary financial burden for these services, was it difficult or did you have any challenges getting adoption from payers, understanding that a lot of insurance players are considering primarily the adults that they're directly covering care and understanding there are some government programs like CHIP that provide 
children-specific insurance, but because it's not the primary population and pediatric behavioral health is a segment that has traditionally you know, not been covered as much and hasn't received as much attention, was it difficult to get that type of adoption? Yeah, really good question. So over the last two decades, child behavioral health went from, for something like specifically like child autism, went from being way less covered than adult behavioral health, broadly speaking, to actually now being, I would say, broadly perhaps more covered than adult behavioral health conditions. So thankfully, through various uh, administrations over the last sort of decade or so, we've seen really expanded uh, mandates for child autism coverage nationally. We've seen mental health parity laws that especially apply to the pediatric populations, I would say. They're broadly applied and enforced across all sort of age groups, but you know, we just see a lot of federal oversight and involvement with the pediatric population specifically. So the payers for them to sort of be compliant broadly with federal guidelines and state guidelines that have been set for them in almost all parts of the United States, you know, generally need to service this child autism population. So we didn't, it's, it's always a challenge, you know, as a sort of like an early stage company trying to get uh, into a partnership with a very large organization, like a national or in certain cases, even international health insurance company. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we were able to work through it because these payers, these insurers, it's very important for them from a compliance standpoint to cover this population. And they sort of knew that we were really focused on access and we could actually help them in their local markets with that compliance that they, I guess, desperately need in in today's healthcare environment. Knowing how slow uh, and inertia-driven the federal government moves, do you have any hypotheses about why childhood behavioral health has taken such rapid adoption recently? Hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, first of all, it's, I think, advocacy in America around these conditions is just incredibly impressive, I would say, from just small groups of parents, families, school districts. I think, look, there's always more to be done. But when you take a look at what that same sort of advocacy looks like in developed economies in Asia or developed economies in Europe, it's on a totally different planet than where it is in America. So I think organizations like Autism Speaks you know, should be absolutely commended for basically doing God's work and getting exposure for the general population around just how complex these conditions are, how expensive they are, and sort of pushing public policy to cover these conditions. And that sort of, in America, being set up as a basic sort of human right to have that coverage for these kinds of conditions. So I think for me, like, like it all started with this like wonderful, you know, movement, I would say, over the last, it, it took decades to sort of, you know, game out. But I think now we're in a kind of what I would call perhaps like an idea economy in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, if you want to hire the best of the best on the market as an employer, 
you have to have coverage for these conditions, like regardless of sort of what the government is telling you, because these are the things that churn your employees. These are the things that impact retention, NPS scores, and the mental health of your employees. And I think what started happening with these adult mental health platforms, I have a lot of sort of founder colleagues that started these and they do the primarily the employer sale uh, through these platforms. They observed was like half the time or a third of the time, the main sort of mental health challenge for, for the parents had to do with their child. Right. So I think it was just this like evolu- quick evolution in the American market, starting with this initial advocacy, but sort of, you know, mental health parity laws being established that sort of created this, I think, wonderful mix of dynamics that I think created like the most vibrant environment for pediatric behavioral health on the planet. And this, again, there's still a lot of work to do, but when you compare the American pediatric behavioral health industry to that of South Korea or Germany or France. It's just on a totally different planet. On that note, I want to congratulate you for the latest Series B funding round of $219 million. What an accomplishment and elevates LME into unicorn status. I'm curious what your near-term plans are for deploying this funding. I know you mentioned LME starting off focusing on autism care. Be curious if you're thinking about expanding some of that care into the broader wheelhouse of childhood behavioral medicine, if you're thinking even beyond that high cutie population, and also how you think about scaling, given you're a hybrid kind of in-person model and kind of the challenges of scaling that across state lines with all the different regulatory complexities. So thank you. We're very excited about the incremental capital because it's just going to allow us to service more families, get in front of more challenging household dynamics and try to help those families work through them, solve them. So I think fundamentally for us, you know, we view ourselves as a, you know, again, like as you correctly pointed out, a pediatric behavioral health company rather than perhaps just a child autism care platform or, or company. Um, so we have a lot of fun sort of new service extensions on the horizon. We're still working through kind of where we're going and, and what that looks like. So we're not, we're not quite ready to announce anything just yet, but I can tell you there's a lot of you know, really, really exciting things, I think, ahead of us. Fundamentally, the big thing, you know, we're trying to solve access for a really complex condition first. Very high acuity, very costly condition. And I think our sort of philosophy internally as a business um, to this day has been like, let's do the hard thing first. So child autism care, it's integrated, multiple service lines, hybrid model, very, very complex. Okay. I think now that we've, you know, found sort of a foundation for how to administer these services in a really effective way, high NPS score way for both clinicians and families and payers, I should say, we're now ready to sort of think about what are other conditions that could benefit from a platform like ours. And from a dollar deployment standpoint in the next couple of years, I think the focus is on building the right software infrastructure to handle various conditions in a relatively agnostic manner. Um, so I think we're inspired by sort of, you know, like a platform like Airbnb starting out as a way to rent perhaps an air mattress in, in someone's living room 
And now fast forward to today to expanding to, you know, luxury vacation rentals, hotels of different types, tree houses, still perhaps mattresses in the middle of living rooms as well, and private rooms and shared rooms. But being able to basically have this very complex and, and broad platform that solves problems for both the supply side of the marketplace and the demand side of the marketplace. I appreciate the focus on the software because I think to your point about access, a lot of different challenges that people may experience with receiving quality care ultimately comes down to if they can kind of relay that care successfully. And now looking ahead to the mental health landscape in the near term and midterm, how do you see the industry shifting and where do you see some of the biggest opportunities or challenges thinking about how COVID has raised the international awareness around mental health and specifically around teenage or pediatric health and even looking beyond to broader industry regulatory shifts? I think still the biggest challenge remains the stigma in our industry specifically that's associated with getting high acuity mental health services. I think that still continues to be the big challenge. I think the more we solve for that, the better coverage you'll have of these conditions globally. You know, more R&D dollars going into these industries, more focus from the Stanford dorm room genius kids that are working on these new kinds of businesses. But I think there's still a lot, a lot of work to be done here on this topic. And I would say it's much more destigmatized in the US, I would say, perhaps relative to other places that I've looked at in the world where we were trying to think about, you know, can we provide high quality child autism care in? But still, I think that is the major impediment. How do you see LME playing a role in destigmatizing mental health care? Or do you see the burden of that actually being more disseminated across a mix of private and public players? So I think we have a, a, just a foundational responsibility to help destigmatize it because our thesis is that will drive better access, faster access, better coverage, uh, and so forth. So there's a lot of different things that we're involved in to help kind of along these efforts from educating various states and kind of government representatives on these various conditions and just how important they are to treat early to educating families, creating online content. We have a learning studio on our website for families to access that really helps sort of educate around the autism condition, but also other, you know, pediatric behavioral health conditions. And then finally, just working with, I would say, influencers of just sort of public perception, influencers of various types, and just making sure that they're educated about this space so they can use their platform to get in front of kind of, you know, their audiences. So an example of that would be like, I have a wonderful relationship with Ashton Kutcher, um, who has his own sort of following. And he just, what a mission-oriented investor and what a big heart you know, and someone that's just looking to help create a better society for future generations. Chelsea Clinton is a, you know, really wonderful example of another investor that we have that's a partner in our business that sort of helps us, again, get the message out there into, into different communities. So I think there's still a lot, a lot of work for us to do 
as a group of people that's trying to push this sort of destigmatization effort, broader access, broader coverage effort. But I think, you know, we have to hit it across all levers sort of to, to drive an impact. I'm also wondering how you think about selecting investors. So I know you mentioned Chelsea Clinton and Ashton Kutcher as kind of, you know, leading investors in the Series B round. But now that you've have the traction and can be a little bit picky about your investors. How do you think about your selection criteria? And then how do you actually then work with investors who invest within LME, especially when you potentially are approaching issues where you may have divergent opinions on where to take the company? Yeah. So I think the way we think about it, it's the same way we think about who do we partner with from a hiring standpoint into the company. I think diversity of opinion matters. And that's like sort of like the most critical thing. I think that's sort of priority number one. And then it's just experiences with different buckets of the population, which is sort of just like a little mini point within diversity, right? So I think for us, we just want to make sure always that we have like different groups of people, different thoughts, different schools of opinions covered on our cap table. So that's how we thought about sort of, you know, we, we were in a sort of lucky position in that we basically, we were able to completely design our entire round construct across allocations, who's involved, who the different investors were. I think for us, I think one of the things that we were really trying to optimize on was like, let's get as many different types of opinions around the table as possible. So we have everyone from Bill Ackman to SoftBank, to Founders Fund, to General Catalyst, to Chelsea Clinton, uh, to Ashton Kutcher as investors around us. And I think what's wonderful is we get to ask the same question to seven, eight different kind of types of investors, if you will, for lack of a better word, and get their opinions on the matter. And I think what's, what's really nice is like all these investors, and, and this is a, a kind of a, a filter for us. If there was one filter, it was is this just a thing about you making money as an investor or are you trying to change the world with us? When you have so much diversity of opinion, it can help cover some blind spots, but you also run into how do you balance and who do you actually ultimately listen to? Have you found this challenging at all, especially when you have some of these high-level investors like a General Catalyst, like a Bill Ackman, like a Ashton Kutcher, who may have very strong opinions about where to take the company? I think you have to listen to your heart as the founder and CEO of the business, I think fundamentally. So I think you have to absorb the opinions, then you have to sort of digest them, look at the numbers. But then I think ultimately in an innovative business, right? Not like an old school, traditional business. I think ultimately the investors empower you as the founder or group of founders, perhaps to make the right call for the business. And I think thankfully for me, these investors Yes, they're very smart and perhaps in turn opinionated people, very driven people. But I think at the end of the day, they put the responsibility on us as the operators, uh, day-to-day operators of the business to make the right call. So I think you have to grab all the facts. You have to make sure you have the full universe of kind of like relevant information to make a decision. And then I think you have to make the decision and then you have to let everyone know about the decision. And the last question I have for you is, I know we talked about the genesis of your entrepreneurial journey, your personal background and how that's influenced the choices that you've made in your professional career. 
now that you've had some time as the CEO of a company that you believe strongly in and are passionate about, are there any general lessons you have looking back at your career and life that you would want to impart for our listeners? I think the biggest one is for me, it's just consistently, it's been trying to push through situations and not like necessarily overthinking things. I think when you're business building, especially in the early stages specifically, you know, I would have perhaps a different set of advice for, you know, perhaps growth stage founders, but when you're starting something from scratch, action is sort of the main driver of your outcomes. So I would say just get moving, get testing. And there's only so much you can research and pontificate about. Get yourself out on the world. When I started the you know, wireless communications business, I was outside selling physical SIM cards on the street. You know, and then eventually we started running Facebook ads and Google ads, and we were able to, you know, sign B2B agreements. And now thankfully you have tens and tens of thousands of subscribers on, on that platform, but you just got to get out there and start learning through interactions with your end user and start just being active basically. So I think, um, I find a lot of founders, they like overfocus on getting the right business idea and making sure it's perfect prior to like setting out, I would say on that journey. And just my experience has been, look, like whatever you you came up with more likely than not, statistically speaking, is going to pivot. It's going to change. You might not have product market fit with that thing. So you just got to get moving on it so you can learn quickly and find the adjacencies that perhaps could make more sense than that main thing. 